Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the Nullcast Bud. As always, we will thank our friends at Louisiana Hot Sauce. Three simple ingredients, one fantastic product. What we don't always do is acknowledge that it's International Podcast Day. New to me, I was unaware that that such a date ever existed, but here we are recording. Thank you to all the listeners who have let us do this for as long as we have. And hey, here's to International Podcast Day. So you learned something every day, bud, and hopefully our listeners will be able to take away something from this podcast. We are going to do a Jacksonville State preview uh, to a level that I'm not sure either of us would have expected coming into a season, Uh, but we'll try to give you as good of an idea as to what Saturday at 4 o'clock might look like, and we have a whole ton of listener questions to get to. Uh, We'll do our best to get to as many as possible. Not sure that we're going to be able to get to all of them looking at the sheer number of them, but uh, we'll do our best to put together as good of a show as possible. And as always, appreciate people's listenership. Here is our attempt to make International Podcast Day as good as possible. Man, did you know uh, that there's a day for like every single thing now? So there was like International Daughters Day, and then like the other day was International Sons Day, and I didn't even realize this till today. I had not logged into Facebook because uh, I don't really use it, and then my mom had tagged me in International Sons Day. So I have a sweet. And uh, I think it's uh, that is a decent reflection of who's using friend of Facebook because I got a call from my father this morning saying happy son's day belated and happy podcast day today. And I was uh, impressed as his knowledge as to the days and, uh, you know, appropriate names that seem to be associated with them. So I, I do want to share something here. Uh, Ingram and I were looking at some of the game notes and some of the stuff that, that they, they send you if you're part of the media for these things. And we think we might have uncovered a money laundering scheme at Jacksonville State. And and we're, we're not trying to belittle anything here, but I, I was looking down and, and looking at some of the media contacts they have. And we noticed that Jacksonville State has an associate AD for football, which, okay, that's pretty normal if you look at some of these guides. And they have an assistant SID for football. And then they have another assistant SID and yet another assistant SID. And Aaron and I kicking around, like, how much do you think an assistant SID at Jacksonville State, which is an FCS team, how much do they make? And, and we're not going to get into that because it's not really relevant. But then we kept looking at the list and we saw that there were three and then four assistant SIDs. Like, have we stumbled onto something here? Is Jacksonville State, like, this is very creative, if so. <laughs> It's like nobody will ever suspect a scheme with, with multiple football staffers in the state of Alabama. Exactly. We will uh, we'll staff up and, and uh, rent money as appropriately. No, it's a, it is impressive the amount of staff that they have allocated to such pursuits. And, hey, bud, you don't just win the Ohio Valley Conference by throwing your head into the ring. You've got to be uh, well-staffed. And uh, according to such document in front of us, they've won the Ohio Valley, what, five out of the last six years? So good for them and they are uh, appropriately staffed to disperse information surrounding those championships as any school of their size that I've seen. Do you feel like it's appropriate for Jacksonville State to be in the Ohio Valley Conference by the way? Like th- like th- that might be stretching it. Like, I understand how Tennessee fits in there and there's a couple of schools from Tennessee in this league but and just just for the record uh, the, the schools in this league are like Austin P, Eastern Illinois, East, EKU, Murray State, Southeastern Missouri State. Tennessee Martin, Tennessee State, and Tennessee Tech. I don't know, man. It's, it's a little far south, I feel like, to, to be in, in the Ohio Valley Conference. But uh, you want to go ahead and get into some of the players for them that you might need to know and then maybe what we kind of expect out of Florida State in this game before we get to these uh, listener questions? 
Yeah, we will do that. We'll do that. I mean, the you know, obviously the the name that most people would be familiar with is their their quarterback, a, a former Clemson commitment. Um, the obvious or the immediate association with uh, with Jacksonville State and playing Florida State is a, you're going to you know remember ten years ago or so when Ryan Paraloo came to town and played a way more competitive game than necessarily was expected early in the year and what I remember to be a pretty rain-soaked game if my 10-year memory still allows me to recall such information but uh no they're you know they've got a good roster and and I said this in the last podcast and I wish I was being hyperbolic and and overly negative but I you know I I don't think Florida State's gonna lose this game but I think Florida State has the potential to lose this game and and unfortunately with where you know, the collective head is at, I'm not sure Florida state is, uh, is assured of not being blown out in certain games. If, uh, if things don't go well and, and maybe being blown out against games that we didn't think they had any chance, but, uh, they've got an impressive, you know, for, for where they are in the college football world, they've got an impressive roster and a couple pieces that could give Florida state, you know, legitimate, legitimate problems. I completely agree. So, for Jacksonville State, it, it look they're a well coached team. They're not like a national championship FCS team, but but they're a pretty decent FCS team. Uh, their coach John Grass has gone fifty eight and eighteen, seven years there in the program, including this one. A couple key guys I want to highlight here who I feel like are you know FBS quality players and, and have ended up at Jacksonville State for you know for various reasons. Uh, so. The first one would be Zarek Cooper. I remember Zarek Cooper as a recruit. He came in, he came to Clemson actually. I think he was the class either right before or right after Deshaun Watson, but that's wrong because Deshaun's older. So he must have been after Deshaun Watson. A pretty athletic guy, had a good arm, not a great arm, a little bit erratic. I remember, I think he was at the Atlanta Nike opening for me. Um, ends up transferring is no longer at Clemson, obviously, and has really blossomed at Jacksonville State, dude. He has 11 games of 300 yards. He's their career passing yards leader, back-to-back seasons with 3,000 yards. And it's not just like, hey, wide open, chuck it, chuck it, chuck it. His uh, his highlight reel, which you can find on Twitter, just Google Zarek Cooper. That's Z-E-R-R-I-C-K Cooper, uh, is, is really Pretty damn impressive, man. So, uh, Zarek Cooper is certainly a name to watch out for in this game. You'll hear it a lot. If, if FSU doesn't come to play, I think Zarek Cooper is good enough to make this game interesting for a while. Uh, he's probably the second best quarterback they've played so far. I, mean, I, I think he's better than Jeff Sims at this point in Jeff's career. Uh, they also have, have a tight end who, who catches a ton of balls in, in Trey Berry, 104. 1180 passing or you know, receiving yards, pretty solid. Couple offensive linemen that, that, that they're pretty proud of, including you know, Michael Shaddix, who's going to be an all-conference guy for them. They, they have a defensive end, good pass rusher in DJ Coleman. Uh, linebacker Zach Woodard makes about a billion tackles for them, 96 uh, last year. And uh, Yule Gowdy is a corner who makes a whole lot of plays. By the way, Cooper uh, Cooper threw 28 touchdown passes last year, so they they definitely score quite a bit. Uh, we'll see if they actually want to want to run any tempo against the Seminoles and uh, maybe they will, maybe they won't. By the way, Gowdy also is a kickoff return dude. They're going to they're gonna base mostly out of the spread and they will chuck it around some. They'll also do a little bit of read option stuff. This is not 
such a unique offense. I don't think that like it's a catch-up issue off guard. I don't know how long we need to spend on this, right? Most of this is going to be about, does Florida State care about this game? Did they get up off the mat? Because they definitely had a little quit in them against Miami. That's something that, that's Coach Norvell's job to get them off the mat, but also to tell them, hey, look, if you want to be a quitter, just get off the team, right? Like, we, 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 we don't need that here. And, if, like, if I'm Coach Norvell, I'm telling these dudes, guess what? I'm going to be here longer than y'all are going to be here, Right. I've, I've got a lot of job security. I know Florida State can't fire me for a long time. And not, I mean, not that I plan on getting fired, obviously, but like, I'm just straight up telling them, guys, I, I know for a fact that I'm going to be here. You don't have to be here if you don't want to be here. So if you want to quit, if you want to give poor effort, if you want to not care, then get gone. Right now, this is a year zero for me. I'm trying to set, set the tone with culture. And, you know, that's, that's what it is. Does Florida State show up in this game is one of the major questions I have about the contest. That's an obvious one, but it's something that it's kind of sad that we have to ask at this point, right? And there's a lot of teams that probably don't care to play an FCS game. But I think in a season in which you're only playing 11 games, and who knows if the Notre Dame game gets played next weekend, given the COVID stuff they have going on, I think you should be pretty fired up to play, especially because you haven't had a win yet, and you played like, you know, played pretty poorly against Miami and, and, and an embarrassing effort. So that from an effort standpoint, that's I'm interested in, in, you know, how well does practice go this week? How much do these guys actually care? Are they, are they going to take, take Jacksonville state seriously? If they don't, I mean, this team is not so good that, that they, they couldn't suffer a massive upset. It, yes, it would be an upset. And certainly when you look at the line, it lets you know how big of an upset it would be. But when, when you're this program and you, you know, internally, you can assess yourself and realize that there's probably not too many wins on the schedule. And you can also look at yourself and know that early season games against inferior opponents have been way too close for this program over the past two years. Look, man, there's not many times where if you were to beat Jacksonville State by 18 points, a fan base might look at it and see as a collective step in the right direction. Now, I'm not, you know, it, it would be lazy for me to merge Jacksonville State with ULM, with Samford, and say that they're all equal opposition, et cetera. Not the case. But certainly have an extent or a opportunity to get a comfortable victory early in the year for a staff and a roster that definitely needs victories of any kind. And for a fan base that may be willing to cut you slack <laughs> on said victory uh, that otherwise they wouldn't be real interested in doing. I mean, I, I think that... Uh, you know, there are some nice pieces of this roster, but on the whole, Florida State should come out, dominate uh, this team, relatively speaking, and, and hopefully, uh, you know, give some confidence to a, a roster that appears to otherwise be bereft of it. So I have some other questions about FSU. We, we spoke in the last episode, if you haven't heard it yet, it was very long and I, I think pretty well received by most people. Is James Blackman going is, to, is he going to be your starter in this game? And if so, how long does he play? Are they going to work in Chapa Purdy at all? In this one, or is it just going to be, you know, Blackman, Tate Rodemaker, Jordan Travis? How healthy is Chubba Purdy? Are they ready to run him out there? You know, if, if, they get, if they get word that maybe the Notre Dame game might not get played due to COVID stuff, maybe you just want to give Purdy two more weeks to get, to get you know, healthy, healthy, I guess, before you run him out there. Because if, you know, if he doesn't play this week and next, next week's game doesn't happen, which I, again, don't know if it will or not. Obviously, Notre Dame, you know, putting out some kind of discouraging numbers there today or rather uh, Tuesday. 
I want to see what 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 their quarterback usage is. I mean, this is not just hey, be media, be, you know, talk about quarterback. Like quarterback's the most important position on the field, and right now, you are not getting acceptable levels of quarterback play. And I don't think you're going to get better levels of quarterback play from Tate Rodemaker. I don't think he's better than Blackman right now. I want to be very clear on that. But at this point, we need to move on and look at like building and understanding what you have and getting some guys, some game reps who are actually going to be there in the future of, of, of your program. And James Blackman's obviously not going to be part of the future of the program. So I'm, I'm interested in seeing if they're willing to just move on for the most part and, and start somebody else. I guess we'll see. As somebody who grew up, uh, you know, with a decent amount of exposure to the Braves franchise in baseball, I might be more familiar with this expression than others, but what was the baseball expression? Uh, Spain and sane and pray for rain. Yeah. So what do our what users would, or do our listeners know what that is? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's certainly a very heavy, it's a reference to a 1940s pitching staff. So it's a very limited reference that I'm throwing out on a college football podcast, but make some kind of modern, you know, modern modification for that Florida state and something like, uh, you know, COVID and, and uh, 2020 O line and pray for rain when dealing with Notre Dame. That was my long winded wordy reference to that. So yeah, the idea that we might not play the Irish, that would, uh, that wouldn't exactly break my heart at this point. So especially because most fans are, are not going to be able to, uh, to go to that game. I am yeah, I'm interested to see what, what, what they do with Blackman. Um, I'm also you know, very interested to see some of the other positions where we talked about. Like, is, I know Emmett Rice and Leonard Warner are, are still listed as your starters. Do they need to be for this game? Like, can, can you throw somebody else in there? They, they certainly didn't play all that well against Miami. Or do you just rotate, rotate them out earlier in the game and then you know, don't wait for garbage time as much and start to play some of these young guys more. I, I think you need to see that. Now I'm going to go back and actually answer your question and not just uh, reference 1940s baseball. I think that we see four different quarterbacks and my personal opinion is that James Blackman's not your starter this weekend. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. It would not surprise me if, uh, if Rotomaker is not the first player to take a snap. That would be, that'd be very interesting if, uh, if, if that came to pass. And it, also because of course, Norvell and Dillingham and those guys, have largely defended uh, James's performance in in the Zoom calls this week. Not like going out of their way to defend it, but just they're a little bit defensive about it. And I think they understand like like you, you can't just blast a kid if you're if you're the coach, especially if it's for something that's not uh, you know it, not an off field thing, right? If he's still playing hard for you, yeah, you can't blast a kid. I do wonder if maybe their decision making with James is not somewhat modified based on the fact that, and I mentioned this earlier in the year, that you're not going to have 76,000 people booing him the second that he steps on the field as, as though you might, uh, with an actual capacity, uh, Doe Campbell Stadium at this point. Uh, you know, it's never great to boo a college kid, but I, I think the, most of the collective fan base has uh, moved to a point to where they're, they're ready to see other people take snaps under center. Uh, yeah, like I, just from the, just from judging from our email and Twitter and you know some Patreon messages we get, Blackman's not playing well, and we've cataloged that. But uh, I, I, there are some people I think who are just so focused on the quarterback because it's the most famous position out there, right? It's the one that's just the easiest to look at, and they they kind of I think think that if you fix quarterback, everything else will be will be good. And I'm like, I'm not so sure about that. I think the collective fan base knows that two parts of the team has to be addressed immediately, the offensive line and the quarterback. And uh, unfortunately, you can't just, you know, there is no wholesale substitution of the offensive line. But quarterback 
you can hope to see the next guy. And particularly when you've seen the current guy uh, give you give you four years of limited, if any, progression that uh, I can understand the, the clamoring. And I'm, I'm not saying that you're, you know, defending James or anything else. And, and I agree to an extent. James is a convenient scapegoat for some of the some of the football programs overall problems that have taken place. But uh, in my opinion, I think the change starts this weekend and, and we start to see a transition at the quarterback position. All right. So uh, you got a score prediction on this one? Uh, I'm going to go 32-13, bud. I'm not going to lie. I have not even thought about a score prediction yet. Like I just, I, I was really more thinking like what, what needs to happen, but well, that's off the hip. That's not, there's no, uh, there's no great formula that, that went into <laughs> to, to generating that number. I can assure you. I, I think FSU knows it needs to put up some points. I think if you're Mike Norvell, you're going to take this opportunity to score some points because if you don't score on Jacksonville state, you're going to go down as having probably the worst offense in FSU history as far as points per game. You know what I mean? Like, like, cause you've scored what 10 a game so far. You, you need to drop a number in the forties here, if at all possible. And I think it is actually possible. Uh, so I'm going to predict a little bit more up-tempo game from FSU. And I will say, uh, 42, 17. And I, I, I that's partially me. I, I think their quarterback will, will, will do enough to score some points. Wow, I just predicted 42 points for, for this FSU offense. That's uh, That makes me not feel that great, but they are playing an FCS team, and it's an FCS team that will give up some points too at times. I will pause real quickly to thank Noel Loans, Shannon Young, 844-FSU-LOAN. It's 844-FSU-LOAN. Ingram, we passed 80 loans made through this program. Incredible. In just three years, uh, can't thank you all enough. I got my home loan and my refi through them. Shannon Young, best in the business for my money and hopefully for yours as well. And we want to give a Noel Cash shout out uh, to Lee and Lauren. Lee and Lauren will be getting uh, t-shirts in the mail and the welcome package soon. I'm probably going to head, head to FedEx on Friday. And Shannon emailed me this morning with the uh, hashtag youth movement uh, to, to announce another loan and another happy uh, set of homeowners. So Awesome. Congrats on the closing, guys. With that, we'll get back into these listener questions with with Lee. Lee says, where are the supposed, supposed leaders on this team right now? The ones who came back to help the program rebuild. Seems to me that many players are a lot of talk, and that's it. I think a lot of that's directed at the defensive line. Uh, and it's frustrating to see that type of production. And uh, you can talk about scheme, you can talk about uh, individual facets, but on the whole, that is the most you know, when you look at recruiting rankings, when you talk about the eighth overall player in the country as a defensive end, when you talk about uh, Robinson and who he was recruited by and, and the type of prospect that, that Marvin was. And, and you know, recruiting is not a perfect science, but it's uh, when you start to talk about that number of players, of highly, highly rated players and players that have given you documented pr- uh, production in the past. And I know Durden wasn't quite as high of a recruit as those other guys, but he was certainly you know, somebody that was highly regarded and somebody that the staff internally thought highly of. It just doesn't make any sense. And I'm not anywhere different than I was two or three days ago when we talked about the fact that, you know, if you were to tell me from a overall ideas, the defense that you were trying to make people earn it, you were trying to get people into situations to where, you know, your defense had a chance to get off the field in third and three or third and short and situational defense, I would think that that's a pretty good blend for what you have on the roster and um, it's just not happening. And and the fact that people have converted 100% of the time 
uh, in the situations that we documented on the last podcast is, uh, is damn near impossible for me to make a, a <laughs> make sense of. So there's certainly, there's certainly problems there. You're not getting the production out of the unit, um, for, for a variety of reasons. And it's exceptionally disappointing and there's no other real way to, to classify that. I would, I would think that, uh, the group would improve a little bit over time. I do think that they're limited by what they can rep against in practice and that carries over to the field, but there's no excuses and there's no way that I can sit here and make them for that group. They're simply not performing period point blank. And it's exceptionally disappointing. I don't, I don't want to be measured in what I say here, but I do think that there are a number of guys on the team who have this kind of like fake Twitter bravado and don't back it up. I'm not entirely sure as to where that comes from. It might be like, like these guys came in as highly rated recruits. They are kind of fronting essentially, right? And they don't, they don't really want to admit that they're on a team that's bad. And you see this like when players from FSU try to fight a team after a game, after they just got their butts beat in the actual game, right? There's still that like, Hey, I'm still tough. This is still Florida State. That that type of stuff, but they're not doing the little things that it takes to win and and to be a leader. And to be honest, that is something that is is not a beneficial thing for this program. But the other part of this is why why what is the personal incentive for Marvin Wilson to be a leader right now? All of the team's goals this year are shot, right? They are not going to finish with a 500 record. Certainly not going to make it to the AC title game, or, or you know, kind of that. They can still go to a bowl actually because of the, uh, the, the there's like no restrictions now on who gets to go to a bowl. But like the guys who you're thinking about, the, the supposed upperclassmen leaders being leaders, what what incentive do they have to be leaders right now? I would say very little. I mean, uh, caring about a school that has largely not given a whole lot back to them. With constant turnover and and strife, probably not. Like if you're Marvin, you need to be focusing on yourself, right? If you're Terry, being a leader of the team is most likely one of the last of your concerns right now, given you know, the, the fact you just lost a loved one who was very close to you and your knees hurting you. And not that like Terry was necessarily a leader on this team anyway, because I'm pretty sure he wasn't. But like, wh- where is the incentive to be selfless and to be a leader? If you're one of these upperclassmen. Yeah. Well, I would, I would answer you and I'm not necessarily saying you're wrong, but I would say that, uh, that traditionally, you know, leadership is leadership. Uh, and, and if you have those traits and if you display them, then you need to do that in a, in a similar, and, and in theory, if you are a real true leader, you would do that if you're down, if you're off to a O and two start or, or if you're, you know, two and O ranked 11th in the country and, we're sitting here talking about how good everything's looked so far. You know, there's, there's certainly an understanding that when you return to a program that you're going to be seen as a guy that people in the locker room look to, whether or not that's fair or unfair. And if nothing else, then it's in all these guys own best self interest to put much better tape uh, on. So take away the leadership, take away all that other, you know, rah, rah stuff from a simple point of what you want your first paycheck to be, at least the one that's uh, that's official and, and going to be shown to the government, you need to start playing better, flat out, nothing. Else. I mean, Marvin Wilson's draft stock is not guaranteed, and he's only done himself, you know, so far, hasn't done himself any favors. And Terry has some nice highlights. I would tell you this before the season started, speaking to 
speaking to people that are in the league, speaking to people that are in the league and, and evaluate and work with that position group. Uh, there's still a lot to be seen from the NFL, a lot of questions surrounding Terry and, and you know what he ultimately could bring to a locker room and a team. Both of those guys have stuff that they need to show, and, and as does Darden, as does Kane Doe. If Robinson has professional aspirations, uh, Lord knows tape needs to look different than it does right now. I, I think all of this could, could theory, in theory, work together. But for now, programs being failed, individuals' best interests as far as where he goes in the drafts are being failed. It's not, uh, it's not a good situation for anybody. If, if it's tomorrow, where does Marvin go in the draft, in your opinion? Third round? Maybe. But I'm not convinced that he got that first-round grade last year. I would say somewhere between late second and... I don't know. Like I'm, Most guys at that position who get a first-round grade from, from the advisor, maybe they can go. But maybe I'm wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm open to being wrong. I just I'm not I'm not I'm not convinced on that. You know. And I've said this on the podcast numerous times. I, in my opinion, if Marvin had gone last year, he would have been drafted somewhere between 28th and 40th. Uh, he would have been a late first round, early you know first uh, 10 to 12 picks of the second round. But at this point, I think he's probably a third round pick, and and you know that fluctuates some. It'll certainly be dependent upon what he does in Indianapolis and everything else, but. Uh, nobody's doing themselves any favors when it comes to their draft evaluation right now. He's really not been much of an impact player so far. The second part of Lee's question asks, uh, at this point, what can Norvell begin to do in order to fix the piss-poor culture and attitudes of this team? Uh, well, I think he can basically let some of these guys know that it's not acceptable. He can make some examples of some dudes who uh, who, who quit, who, who give poor effort out there. Um, you know, it, when they identify those dudes and they, they say, hey, like, this is a loaf, this is a loaf, you're, you're not you're not showing up on time to meetings. You're not going to class. You're not giving effort on plays where the ball is not going to be thrown to you. Not associated with the receiver room. Just that's an obvious loaf. And you bench them. I mean, like you, you take away playing time. Or if they're if it's bad enough, you just say, "Hey, you're you're off the team. You can't do that to everybody." And I don't think you need to do to everybody. But uh, that's that's one of the things he can do. Uh, other than that, recruit the guys in here who he feels like are going to have the right attitudes. It's hard to blame these guys for not for not trusting Mike Norvell. Right. I mean, he came in, he didn't really get to meet many of them in person and, and form relationships with them. They were in zoom after like a hundred days together. And that's just, it's tough to install your culture over zoom. It's just been weird. And these are dudes who largely have learned not to trust their coaches because you've had four, three coaches in a four year span as far as your seniors. I don't have any, um, <laughs> any criticism of anybody trusting Mike Norvell or new coaches or whatever else. I, I still think that, uh, you know, when it boils down to it and you're uh, somebody that's trying to play on Sundays, you can't keep getting your, your rear end blocked on a one V one situation and, and constantly getting stalemated, et cetera. I mean, simply uh, defensive line has to perform at a, at a level that we haven't seen from them otherwise. So uh, we will uh, not to be dismissive. I'm not sure we can be quite as thorough in our first two questions uh, as we, as we can be for the rest of the lot, but we will jump into them. Chris asked, and I thought this was a very interesting question. Chris asked, how does this offensive line compare to the young guys uh, that were on the OL in the years 2010-2011? So that is Antoine Greenlee, who never really played, Daco, um, Zebra Sanders, David Spurlock. Who else was on that line? So 2010 to 2011 was different, right? So 2011, you had Josue Matias and Trey Jackson late in the game and then Bobby Hart uh you know came on uh there in in 2011 all, all as uh, as true freshmen 
uh, and then who, we're missing somebody else in 2010. Was Stork, Stork was there in 2010? I'm pretty sure. I think Stork was there in, in 2010. I'm not sure he was playing much. Uh, I think Irving's on the roster. Is he on the roster in 2010? And then moves to offensive tackle in 11. I can't remember exactly. They went to Oklahoma and got smoked in what year? 2010, and then 2011 they lost close at home because then Goldman comes on in 2012. All right, so if you recall, do you guys remember this? The pushing incident? And I'm pretty sure that's that's defensive tackle. <laughs> that's defensive tackle Irving with the uh, I just tried to kill somebody smirk on my face, and it's uh, maybe it's offensive tackle Irving by the time Oklahoma comes back to town next year. I, I think that's exactly right. Um, is Rodney Hudson still on the 2010 team? Uh, yeah, if he is, that's a completely different offensive line. Let's uh, check on that real quickly. Rodney Hudson, uh, yeah, he was a senior on on the 2010 team, according to Sports Reference. So yeah, so there there's, <laughs> there's certainly nobody to compare to old Huddy on this uh, this offensive line. That's for sure. Rodney Hudson might end up in the Hall of Fame, dude. Rodney Hudson is one of my favorite players. That is not a skill position player. And so is Trey Jackson. Uh, those are two of my favorite guys that Florida State's had in quite a long time. And man, if you could put together an, uh, you know an all offensive line over the last twenty years, it would not be the, the worst two guys to start with. That's for sure. So, how does this line compare? I think the twenty ten line was better than this one. Pretty damn sure. They had Rodney Hudson. You had Dako and Zebri, who were they were upperclassmen at that point. Yeah, Zebri was a junior. Jatko was uh, was uh, a starter, and I believe a junior as well. Well, Dako started as a as a like a two hundred and sixty seven pound freshman, didn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah. So he was he was three years into it and started to have some some shoulder problems, if I remember correctly. But was still a pretty you know was a noticeable upgrade from what we had run out there during some of the leanest of lean times on the offensive line. Ryan McMahon was apparently still on the team. I don't even remember that at that point, uh, but he was going to, he would probably be a senior at that, at, at, at that time. So that's your center. Yeah. Your guard is Hudson tackle is stack. I mean, it Spur is lock is your other guard. I think it's a significantly better offensive line. Yeah. Largely because of, of, you know, of, of experience. They had actually played together. They, they had been under the same offensive line coach since, uh, since 2007, they were in the same scheme, you know, mostly. Uh, so yeah, the, 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 the 2010 line was, was definitely better. I think I see what he's getting at though. It, when he throws in 2011, this question from Chris, uh, because he, we're talking about the young talent on that line and, you know, Florida state does have some young talent. Uh, you and I both discussed this in the offseason, like how much better, if at all, would Dante Lucas be this year? And clearly he's not better than he was last year, through, at least through two games. Is that is that whiskey you're drinking? No. no I was going to say, that is an enormous swig. If, if, uh, <laughs> but, like, bravo to you. If, my t- if, yeah, uh, my, my takes will be way hotter in about five to ten minutes. Let it, uh, let it kick in there. If the offensive line uh, causes Zinger to drink this much, so we, we may need to have an intervention here. Um, I think I still have hope that Dante Lucas can get better, right? Just because he you know got emotional after the loss and, and all that stuff, and you can see the video on Twitter or whatever. I, that that that's not a reason to write a dude off. He like his concerns this off season were finding you know a, a like somewhere where he could rehab. Like he wasn't able to work on his game that much this off season. Largely the same thing with with Washington, who was was coming off an injury. 
I, I think you, you, you still have decently high hopes for both of those guys in the long term, although they don't really look much better this year than they did last year. And then you're going to have to see what you got in a Schrader and a Scott. Not Brady Scott, but Robert Scott, the offensive tackle you signed last time out of Arkansas. Uh, I imagine they'll start to work those dudes in a little bit more. Um, but like, there's not a clear next wave of guys like you had in 2011. And by the way, we had no idea if that was going to work out. And FSU got extremely lucky that those guys all stayed healthy, right? And, and I mean, almost as soon as they left FSU, Trey Jackson and Tias would end up getting hurt again uh, in, in, in the league. And they had come in with injury issues prior. So they were very lucky that those guys actually ended up staying, staying together and staying healthy uh, during most of their time at FSU. But I would say this this line, as currently constructed, does not compare uh, as favorably uh, as, as that one did. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, you know, there, as of now, there aren't kind of the pieces that uh, the, that young. So 2011's the Notre Dame bowl game where you have five freshmen playing or whatever. I mean, it's, you know, hard to hard to see some of the pieces that, uh, you know, Mateus was a noticeable recruiting win. You, you could tell those guys were big legitimate bodies and maybe that's the rod awards of the world maybe that's you know the people that are getting added on into this class and what's different from this time period is that the you know the transfer portal transfer market whatever you want to call it it was not in play and that certainly is going to have to play its role in how florida state transitions and and shapes its offensive line eric asks it pains me to even ask this and i wish i didn't feel like this was a possibility but here it goes i'm 41 years old and is this the worst Florida State football team in my lifetime, it's become very difficult for me to see more than three wins at most on this schedule. But I'm hoping maybe I just don't know enough about football to recognize the reasons to be hopeful. Thanks so much for all of what you both do. Thank you, Eric. Eric, thanks for the question. Uh, So this is an interesting one. I don't have data going back 40 years as far as like like a, a rating system, really. Sports reference rating. Uh, there's there, there is a there is a rating system that rated teams from back forty years. But I'm I'm just going to take the leap here. Starting in 1980, essentially, if if he's you know, or 1979, um, I I don't think there's been a worse FSU team. Although 2018 was not very good, right? So if we're judging this team just based on the first two games, certainly. If you're judging it on record, this is going to be the, the least amount of wins an FSU team has ever had. But at the same time, they're only playing 11 games, and 10 of them this year are conference games. So that's really not a, a fair comparison to make because you're automatically going to have some more losses. And uh, I, I just did the ACC power rankings for uh, for 247sports.com. And here's the thing. They don't play a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the teams at the bottom. So my power rankings this week, I had Wake Forest 15, FSU 14, Syracuse 13, Duke uh, Duke 12, NC State 11, Georgia Tech 10, Boston College 9. So they don't play BC, they don't play Syracuse, and they don't play Wake off the schedule, which is difficult uh, to, to do. So, you know, we'll see if they're able to gather any more wins. Um, Three wins is not out of the question for for this team. I don't think four is out of the question either, and two is not out of the question as well. Like if they totally quit, they could just just pick up one ACC win. We'll have to see. This is a challenge for Mike Norvell is, is to get this team not to quit 
and, and, and actually care um, while still developing them, while still getting a chance to see how well they do as far as playing time and development for the future and evaluating them. So he's got a lot on his plate right now. I did talk to some, some dudes over there and they were very, and, and I don't think they would have to tell me this because they know like they have great job security, but there's obviously you take, you take this with a grain of salt, but they basically just said coach Norvell's energy and his enthusiasm and his drive to make this place better has them all in as far as them, them as coaches and, and as him as a boss. So it sounds like he came in kicking ass after that loss on, uh, on like w- w- when he got back in the building on Tuesday. Um, I, I don't think he's taking this thing lying down. I think he's pissed probably. And, you know, he can say, Hey, it's on me. It's on me. And, and look, part of it is on him. They ran a defensive scheme that they might have thought they had down pat in practice, but clearly those guys played like, the, like they had cement feet in the game because they didn't, they didn't understand what they were doing. And they didn't internalize it and know it well enough to be able to react to what they were seeing in front of them as opposed to thinking and playing slow, which is what happened. I don't think they could have done much different offensively, to be honest. I think they're just absolutely screwed there because of personnel. I know it's it's exceptionally frustrating and incredibly disheartening to watch what happened to this football program that has over the first two weeks. And, you know, Florida State-Miami is is a massive rivalry, and it's one of the benchmarks that's used as to where this program is every year. If you're a Florida State fan, I might suggest that really you look at the Louisville game and you look from there on as to what this season is, the the trajectory of the program. You know, if if you can hit yourself with one of those men in black light sticks after the after the UNC game and just try to forget what has happened the first five weeks and, and look and evaluate what you do against Louisville, Pitt, NC State, Virginia, and Duke. And that'll give you some kind of idea as to the trajectory of, of how the roster's being used, where the program is. And I don't want to – I think your, your question is very legitimate. You're 41, I'm 37. I feel the same way. I don't have all the data and analytics to me, but from 1990 on, I feel pretty confident about my recollection of Florida State football. This is a dark, bleak period of time. But wait and see how the back half of the season projects before we, you know, all kind of wallow in the misery of, of this being the worst ever. And and uh, let's just see what it looks like from there. Uh, from there, moving forward. By the way, uh, some interesting quotes I do want to want to pull from Norvell's press conference today, right? Um, he talked about like he was pleased with the effort, with the pad level, blah 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 blah. Uh, but he he said best practice all year. Denise, is that phrase? Uh, yeah, he was pretty happy about it. Um, I was I was typing something up when, when I was watching. But he also said, "quote Some of it's confidence, knowing what you're supposed to do in the call you have, not hesitating, not being worried to mess up." I think that's largely in reference to the defense, right, and why they look like they're playing so slow. We we may think that Warner is slow and whatnot, but but I've never I never thought Emmett Rice is slow. But those guys are clearly thinking out there. They're not reacting within their role in the defensive scheme. So they have not done a good enough job of teaching this right now. Uh, I know a lot of people took the whole, hey, this team doesn't look better coached right you know the, the, than last year's team. We don't mean that they don't have better coaches. We just mean they haven't shown it yet. I think that's pretty fair, uh, and. You know, not not trying to do the, hey, these guys are not better coaches thing because they might be, 
I think there's a decent chance they are. We'll see if they're better recruiters. So that's that's a different conversation. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought Norvell's comments today were were interesting. He talked about trying to get you know best on best and and try to try to get more reps, good on good. We know that's something they were not able to do that much in, in practice because they, they were worried about some of the exposure stuff and also the injury that they were trying to work around. All right, let's go ahead and go to uh, to James's question. Or uh, yeah, to James. James asks, given the declining recruiting rankings from 2018 to 2020, how can Norvell balance a youth movement, a full youth movement, with securing enough on the field success to attract stronger future classes? Uh, James, it's a good question, although I will say that um, you're not going to be able to do it. I mean, the 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 on-the-field success is not going to be a component to your recruiting pitch at this point. You know, it it is – where maybe maybe earlier in the summer you were saying, you know, we can't get in front of you right now, but, you know, wait and see what we do with this team, wait and see what we do with these pieces. I think you're probably more talking to these kids about them being the pieces, about, uh, you know, getting them in the program and, and them being the pieces that lead you to a turnaround. Uh, not to say they won't have success, uh, but I don't think at this point they're going to have a whole lot of traction pitching on the field success. They're probably going to win three games this year, in my opinion. That's that's not something you go on the recruiting trail and bang your chest about. So uh, you're, you're pitching other things at this point. You're, you're pitching like if Daryl Henderson does a good job for the Rams this year, right. With, with acres and, and Brown being banged up, you're, you're pitching guys like, like that and, and Miller and, and those dudes that you put in the league at Memphis um, and you're pitching playing time at FSU, which by the way, I do think Mike Norvell needs to take a look at his staff now and say, all right, if the product that we have to sell is not as good, does it still make sense to have this, like this staff's uh, construction, or do we need to make a change in a position or two to get some dudes who are better recruiters and better salesmen if the product's not as good? That's not to say these guys can't recruit, but I do think like that's your job as the head coach to make sure you have the right balance of recruiting and coaching. And right now. Uh, you don't, you're not going to have on-field success or any on-field improvement, literally, to sell. So you're going to need to sell playing time and to come be what's next. Uh, by the way, uh, Eric, I, I, he may have sent this question in before, uh, before he listened to the latest episode. Uh, but we did talk for about 30 minutes, I think, on how do you execute a youth movement in the, la- in the latest episode, wh- why you don't want to do it in certain situations, why you do want to try to do it in certain ways. Et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, um, I would strongly encourage you guys to make sure that you don't miss the last episode, particularly the, the uh, youth movement section of the show, which I think was kind of in the, that like middle part, if I recall. Chris asked, having watched three Georgia Tech games and two Florida State games, should we realistically expect this to be a two win season at this point? Yeah. I mean, I, I see where you're coming from, Chris. I would say, we're always uh, at a danger of doing this early in the college football season. We take what are relatively small data points and extrapolate them to larger things. I think that's always going to be risky. I think it's even more so this year with, with some of the crazy variants that we're going to see week to week. Um, but at the same point, you know, you, you've seen <laughs> what you've seen and you've seen a basic inability to function in, in decent aspects of Florida State's overall roster that I don't think a number like that's ridiculous. I would, uh, you know, I would probably have us at three and a half wins right now. So for you to say 10 or two is not some absurd number, but yeah, it's, uh, it's been tough to watch Georgia tech losing to Syracuse was, um, I don't want to say a tough pill to swallow, but certainly gives you 
an even deeper perspective as to the fact that that Georgia Tech team that came in and beat you was exactly what we said they were, and that is a bad football team. So, yeah, it's going to be a challenge, and uh, enjoy Saturday, hopefully, because I don't know how many other, uh, you know, victorious Saturday evenings are going to be had, are going to be out there for Florida State fans this year. So, right, like they, they could clip somebody that we're not expecting them to clip, and so I'll, I'll take uh, one of the popular rating systems, which has dropped if she's ranking quite a bit, right? I mean, like they're, they've plummeted uh, down to like 60th. This rating system that I'm looking at here, they still have FSU at like 3.4 wins, okay? They still have them as a slight favorite at Duke and at NC State. Now, you might think, okay, that's crazy. And you might be right, but Duke is kind of a cluster right now. They committed seven turnovers at Virginia the other day, and it could have been like nine. Uh, like they, they really got, got blasted by UVA. NC State uh, lost, what was the final score in that one? I'm, I'm, I remember, remember kind of flipping it over after it was done. Uh, they lost 45 to 24 at Virginia Tech. And made Virginia Tech look like world beaters. Vatek was missing 23 players, including their starting quarterback. Then their backup quarterback gets knocked out. And NC State, which gave up 42 to Wake Forest, which is a bad team, like real bad. They, and if she doesn't get to play them this year, then they give up, like the second half of the game was the third stringer for B Tech, and they still give up 45 points to the Hokies. So there are, there are some teams on the schedule which are quite beatable. Is Pitt beatable? I have my doubts because I'm just not sure you can block Pitt. But at the same time, Pitt's offense is liable to just throw up all over itself at times. So that's entirely possible that you could win that one. I'm not going to pick you to do so. Could you beat Virginia in Doak? Yeah. UVA could screw around and lose that game. I mean, I don't think they're much better than they were last year. Of course, you're not either. Notre Dame is not winnable, but it also might not be played. Who knows? Louisville. I'm interested to see what Louisville does. This is a unique challenge for, for Coach Satterfield up there, given that a lot of media thought they were going to take a step this year. We didn't because we thought like that was just unreasonable to expect another step after the step they took last year. Louisville's lost two straight now. They're not going to make the AC title game. they got to go play Georgia Tech, and then they, then they go play Notre Dame, and then they, then they play FSU. Like, I mean, Louisville is probably sitting at two and four when they come to play FSU. Who knows what their attitude's like? Or rather, when FSU goes by them, but it doesn't really matter because you know crowds and travel this year, not much of an advantage. It's also one of the games that, yeah, I mean that's the stretch of the season that I just talked about. That's you know something if you go in there, beat Louisville, maybe beat one of either Pitt or NC State, and you feel like you got a little bit of momentum. Take your take your medicine against Clemson, then come out and see what you do in the last two games of the season. If, if you got a young quarterback running and finding success, and some of the younger pieces on this roster, I'm you know, promise you this fan base isn't going to be doing backflips over the idea of being, you know, four or five wins in a year. But if you show real progress and, and end the year, and I know this is an easy and perhaps lazy comparison to make, but show some kind of similar success to what Tennessee did at the back end of last year, then yeah, you would, you would feel like maybe there's a little bit of momentum here and it would be a, you know, a strange situation for a Florida State fan base to come off a four or five win season and, and yet maybe have a, you know, buoying level of confidence that is real hard for us to project at this point in time. All right. So uh, how about uh, how about this one here from uh, 
Do I, did, did we take the second half of Chris's question? We didn't take the second half of Chris's question. I'll, I'll, I'll throw it out here right now. How much of the ineptitude out of elite players like Wilson and Terry is attributed to them and how much of this uh, S blank show is due to an inability of players to play an assignment football. Terry, <laughs> I have a hard time grouping Terry into that being as he doesn't necessarily play in a, a manner that's productive to people outside of him frequently. And I don't see, uh, look, I'm not in the staff. I don't have all 22, but to me, it doesn't look like Wilson's out there playing some ridiculously aggressive, selfish brand of football. It just looks to me as though he's having a hard time winning one V one battles. I mean, I don't, I don't see somebody that's just going out there, you know, playing with some blind aggression and, and, you know, damn what is being asked of him. I just see a guy that's not having success. That's a good answer. Um, Certainly some of it's attributable to them. It, it, this is tough, man. I, I, I'm glad he asked it though, because it's, it's something that, that I've been thinking about a lot. Like, how do you say, like, is it coaching or is it on the individual players? The answer is clearly, is it both? I, I've not really figured out the exact, exact way, you know, to, to ascertain exactly how to, how to, how to portion this out and say, okay, it's, it's, you know, X amount Terry's fault and X amount the staff's fault. Uh, now, how does Terry react to things on the sideline? Getting in a shouting match, and if, if you can read lifts with, with with what he says to Dugan's there, that's on him. Certainly, you know his effort level when he blocks, that's on him. I mean, like that—that's receiver blocking is largely effort and want to, and, and frequently he doesn't care. Yep. Nobody else had anything to do with him dropping that pass against Georgia Tech. Uh, I have a, I have a hard time finding a lot of excuses for Terry right now uh, other than than what we've acknowledged just off the field stuff but his play on the field um there's there's not a whole lot that remedies his responsibility let's go ahead and go to uh to Kessna I mean Kessna always has some interesting questions for us so he says hey when I look at Norvell's Memphis team and other group of five teams that have success and I see their roster made up of two and three stars with maybe a four star here and there Am I wrong to not be that concerned about recruiting over the next two or three years? If he can get a bunch of hungry, quote, average players to buy in and play together and have success, won't the recruiting take care of itself once the culture changes? Uh, Kessna, I wish it was this easy, uh, but I have to tell you that, that it's, it's not. Um, the thing is, he's playing against other two and three stars at, at the G5 level. So if you just get a bunch of two and three stars here at Florida State, that's not going to work because you're not playing against a bunch of other two and three stars. And I don't think, just think changing the culture is going to be enough to, uh, to fix recruiting. You, you're probably going to have to look at your staff makeup. You're going to have to sell playing time effectively. You're going to have to sell your track record at Memphis. You're going to have to form relationships within the state, which a lot of that is to no fault of your own, by the way. Like Mike Norrell just got, just got dealt an absolutely ridiculous hand. I mean, it, it's, this is why. In some ways, he's lucky that Florida State doesn't have the money to do something stupid again and you know m- make a move on a head coach way too soon. He's just going to need time on this. They're going to have to form these relationships. But it's not just going to be just change the culture and, and recruiting is fixed. And the thing is, there are other coaches out there who can coach up and get the most out of four and five stars. So if you get the most out of your two and three stars and you do, you do an awesome job with those dudes uh, and you know, most of those guys are going to go pro in some other sports, and then you you go face a team that has a bunch of four and five stars and it's well coached. Uh, then you're going to get beat. If you if you are high on Norvell's chances to succeed at Florida State, a lot of that is because of what they did at Memphis. Right? They did identify talent that was uh, 
un- underrated. They developed that talent and they deployed it effectively. So I, I think it's entirely, I would not be freaking out about recruiting because I don't really know, you know, honestly, what they could be doing that differently in recruiting right now. The, the graphics they send out are good. It looks like they're fairly organized in, in that side of things. I know they communicate with the kids regularly. Uh, they seem to be pretty organized there. They do have some young, energetic guys on the staff who connect. They have some veteran guys on the staff. I mean, it's not within their control that they couldn't get out and meet the high school coaches. We know Norvell went and did the high school coaching circuit as far as like the speaking tours and stuff. I went to one of those in, uh, in what was that, uh, Cocoa Beach or St. Augustine? It was, it was over there. I, f- I forgot where I drove to now. Uh, back, remember back when we used to go places? That was cool. You know, with the dead period, he's going to go an entire cycle without having meeting, without having met most of the high school coaches in the state at all. And his assistants as well. It's all Zoom. It's all phone calls, that, that, that kind of thing. And that's just different, man. It, it's, it's different. Like you, you talk to your boys differently in person than you would, you know, meeting some, some friends first time over Zoom. And it, it, it's just different. So we're going to have to evaluate what they do and, and what is kind of their year one, which is next year. It's, it's a good staff uh, from the recruiting perspective that they get on kids. Like the kid out of Birmingham that they offered today, the Makai Hughes, the running back. Check on that kid in three weeks. I bet he's got five different other Power 5 offers within within a two-week period of time. Florida State was was the first one, if I read that story correctly, this morning on, on 247. So they do a great job of identifying talent, relatively speaking. They get in on prospects. Um, it's a, again, it's a lazy, cliched thing to say, but the, the staff needs a, an Eddie Grant. The, the staff needs somebody uh, that is fluent in the language of South Florida recruiting and can go in and, and win you battles that you're otherwise seemingly not getting involved in right now. Some of that will be determined by play of the field. Uh, but there certainly needs to be, in my opinion, a little bit more of a Florida-centric ap- approach. And it's not just one guy. It's not, you know, just one guy comes in and unlocks everything for you. But uh, that is something that will be interesting to see how they handle and maybe the composition of the staff moving forward. So, yeah, I completely agree. And and you kind of have to you have to fit your staff into realizing this is not going to be a, a quick flip uh, and probably slower than you you hoped it would be when you took the job. Obviously, nobody really saw the COVID stuff coming. Uh, but you're not going to have any kind of success to sell on the field for your first two seasons on the field, most likely. Although you might be able to sell some improvement next year, actually. A lot of us thought that next year's team might be worse than this year's team. Uh, and talent-wise, like top-end talent, that might be true. But if you want to talk about trajectory, I, I talked to Bill Connolly about this one time. We were just kind of shooting the breeze. and I was like, honestly, man, it's not always great to have an f- awesome first year if you're going to have a, a lack, not a lackluster, but, but a second year that doesn't quite measure up to it. Like look at, at Scott Satterfield at Louisville. They won like eight or nine games last year. This year, they're probably going to go like five and six. Okay. So their momentum. Now he would never turn down winning those games in year one, but their momentum in year two now looks like they're going backwards. Is the program really worse or is the, is the roster just not quite as good and, and, and their, their luck as far as schedule? is not quite as good. There's a pretty good chance you win more games in 2021 than you win in 2020. I think we're both fairly confident you will have better quarterback play in 2021. Not guaranteed. Nothing's guaranteed in sports, but 
I think there's a good shot that it'll probably be Trevor Purdy and that he will be better than uh, than James Blackman is right, right now. And it's hard for me to imagine your offensive line not being better. Receiver, less talented, but production might be there just depending on you know, what, what, what kind of performance you get. So I was kind of rambling, but uh, hopefully that was that was helpful uh, to some folks there. We have a couple more questions to get to tonight, man. This is uh, it's a lot of questions. Wow, we got a lot of questions. We're, we're going to have to do, a, do another bonus episode this week or, or early next week for sure. Um, so we will uh, commit to doing, unless FSU loses to Jacksonville State. If they do, then we're going to have to do kind of an autopsy on that. <laughs> we're not supposed to laugh, man. Not no, funny. Don't even put that out there. Don't even put that out there. FSU losing is not funny. We're not supposed to laugh at anything. Everything is serious at all times. No, uh, trust me. If, you, if you're not laughing, I'm almost crying at this point. But uh, yeah, yeah, no. So Kessner has another good question, and he, he asked uh, about our good friends at Louisiana Hot Sauce. And before I get into his question, I will thank our friends at Madison Social, who who use Louisiana Hot Sauce in their no-cast Bloody Mary uh, that I believe is still available on game days and would always uh, remind people of that when uh, making their way down to college town before kickoff, but our, our friends, Matt and his team, just fantastic uh, supporters of the Noel cast, uh, great supporters of Florida state athletic in general. You can always get a, an extra piece or two of Noel cast gear at madisonsocial.com backslash Noel cast. And uh, would remind people as we are favorable and want to do that. Uh, the 17th of each month is Reuben day. It's one of the best uh, culinary experiences there is in Tallahassee. And it's just kind of emblematic of, the uh, great experience that Madison Social Township and Centrale uh, offer you every other day of the month. So what kind of Louisiana hot sauce would I sprinkle on this offense? I'd probably throw more screens. I don't see a whole lot of teams that feel the need to press FSU right now, so I'd I'd probably try to throw some more screens. Um, Not that it's necessarily going to work, but it's something they might be able to complete. That's assuming that Norvell can get buy-in from the guys to actually block them and, and, and to care. Maybe you want to commit to the run game a little more, even though it's not any good. But it, it, some of this is predicated on on the idea that you might be able to get your defense okay at some point. I, I think you you almost have to, right? Like there's there's too much athleticism and athletic talent on this defense to play as bad as they're playing. And I feel like a broken record at times, but we're not wrong. Like they have athletes on this defense. It, it needs to be playing better. If the defense starts playing better, you know maybe you play to your defense a little bit more. You run the ball, you, you punt. Not that their punting game has been amazing, but anyway, I'd probably run the ball some more and, and throw some screens. I, I just I've never really felt like I had fewer ideas about how to improve improve the offense than I do right now because I just feel like there's failures at, at every level. Like there's no real unit on the offense that I have any kind of confidence in. Like is Terry going to play this weekend? Skeptical, skeptical that that's going to happen. Nothing earth shattering here, but my my option to or my answer to Kessner's question about what uh, parts of the offense that you would do to sprinkle on to add a little bit more flavor, I would run with the quarterback much more. I mean, there even with James, there's a designed run play, and granted, I think it's freaking thirty-one to three or something like this, uh, where they. Uh, you know, fake a, uh, I think they faked a total Philly. And, and it's one of the better executed run plays uh, that you see all night. And James runs it well. Uh, the announcers misdiagnose it as a broken play. No, it's, it's a design run all along. And it's one of the, I think it picks up 12 yards, which is indicative of the limited success otherwise had by the offense. But I think you've got to run the hell out of the quarterback right now. And whether it be James, whether it be uh, Purdy, um, 
Rotomaker I know is limited in that, but uh, he, he appears more comfortable making making reads than maybe any other quarterback that we have on the roster right now. And obviously, have we seen Travis throw the ball this year? I think you got to go back to the bowl game to see him. But well, obviously, he did throw one. He threw it to Miami's defensive end. We know the the, the ball that went three yards and immediately into somebody's hands, but. Um, uh, you know, even if it's just an obvious run at this point, I, I think you've got to uh, to just be, you know, to, it, you're not going to surprise anybody with a quarterback run, but I think you got to commit to it, and that may be, you know, one of the only ways to kind of get your your running game to open up some and provide some element of a stability for an offense that desperately needs it right now. All right, so let's go ahead, and I agree with you on the running the quarterback. That that's that's one I I, I should have said, and when as you said it, I was like. Yeah, because it also creates the extra angle with, with, with the extra blocker because you're not having to hand the ball off, right? You, you're just taking it, running it. It's it's really the simplest form of football, but there's a reason it still works because it's just it's a numbers game. Uh, Santosh asks, is it time to start signing promissory notes yet? So I included this uh, because one, Santosh is a great supporter of the show and, and asks us uh, a, a lot of good questions. But two, I know it's easy to laugh at, but I think it's worth remembering that Florida State won, what, six of the next seven games after they did that? Now, you know, granted, the competition wasn't uh, wasn't the best. Seven of the next eight, I believe, actually. They beat Miami. They beat Wake. They lose to Clemson in a, in a game that, you know, still probably bothers parts of this fan base about calls and controversial calls associated with it. And then they won their next five games. And granted, it was against NC State, Boston College, Syracuse, a Florida team that was broken and a, a Michigan team that uh, – you know, believe it or not, didn't have one of their better players, if we can really call that far back. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> Seven out of eight is something that I think a lot of this fan base would clamor for. So I know it was was clownish, and I know it was indicative of things to come. And if you want to talk about, you know, leading and lagging indicators like we did in the last podcast, then promissory notes are probably one of the more horrible leading indicators as to the direction of a program, as you could possibly think. But it appeared to have some level of success at the same time. Yeah, I I'm gonna go back and see if I can pull some stuff on this to to figure out like did they actually get better from that point forward or did they just like did their record just get better? I I, I should be able to find that. So real quickly, they beat Miami by a point. This was when Miami was collapsing, right? I believe that's is that the Jalen Ramsey game where you win twenty to nineteen? So twenty sixteen, you always play Miami down there in even numbered years. So yeah, that would have been the Jalen game. Maybe the best individual performance I've ever seen, by the way. I, I had long thought that that was a Corey Simon game from the nineties, but incredible. Oh my God. When you go back and look at that, I mean, and not just that he's playing well, and this is kind of how, and we've spent a lot of time answering questions. I don't want to get too far off track, but he forces fumbles. He blocks kicks. He intercepts balls. I mean, he, he's rushing the passer. It, it's just a performance of a lifetime. You beat Miami by a point. You come back, <laughs> beat Wake Forest uh, emphatically 17-6, to which was not the most beautiful games to watch. You lose uh, to Clemson 34-37, to as I already referenced, in a really disappointing game with disappointing officiating decisions. Travel to Raleigh and beat NC State 24-20. to Beat Boston College uh, in Tallahassee 45-7. to Go to... They were collapsing at that point. Wasn't that, wasn't that Spaz? Yeah. Spaz's last year? Uh, oh, well... Is that, uh, yeah, I'm not sure about that. You go to Syracuse, beat them 45 to 14, uh, which is no great feat. You beat Florida 31 to 13 uh, in, a, in a game that was fun to watch and 
fun to watch how you endured, uh, handled the end of it. And then you beat Michigan in the uh, aforementioned Orange Bowl there. So did they really get better? I don't know. Did they w- <laughs> did they win a lot of games for a fan base right now that would love the idea of, of rolling off a couple of victories? Uh, they did manage to do that. Certainly. So do you remember why they broke out the promise notes? It wasn't the loss. It wasn't all. It wasn't all the loss to Louisville. It was. It was the as you correctly pointed out to me previous uh, us hitting recording, and I had forgotten this. It was. It wasn't all Matthew Thomas against North Carolina, but it was some some real easily identifiable loaf plays in a series of drives uh, by the defense and at the end of the game. There, yeah. This is we t- we started to talk about this at the time a little bit in some of these older episodes. We talked about how. There was this attitude of like, because I'm at Florida State, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go pro, like it's guaranteed, almost regardless of what I do at Florida State. And I think, I think that's, that's what that staff was concerned about. And I think in some ways they realized that they had kind of fostered that culture and they sold it on a recruiting trail. And so that was part of what they got. And it's not wrong to sell that on the recruiting trail, but this is something Herb Street's actually talked about. And I, th- I think he's actually got this right. And oftentimes I don't really agree with Kurt, but he talked about like, look, you, if you build your program only on sending guys to the pros and not anything else, it, if things start to go wrong, it does kind of foster this, this individuality to an extreme. And I think that was part of the thing with, with the promise notes. You also had guys like not showing up for team meetings or just showing up late, and there was a bunch of stuff. As far as it, was, it wasn't just on-field effort; it was a lot of stuff. Yeah, let's uh, get a couple more questions in here, and I included this one because we've seen a lot of it. And honestly, I'm I'm interested in the subject matter in general as to your opinion. Uh, but Matt's question is: Where does Florida State stand with the APR? I'm about ready to start pulling scholarships. So Matt's not playing around. Yeah, he's he's ready. Uh, there aren't too many highlights of the Willie Taggart era, but uh, that was one significant step forward that he did, and it would be wrong of us not to give him some credit for that. And by all accounts, Norvell is off to a, a strong start academically, although uh, you know one could could make an argument that having a bunch of online classes certainly can help you do that. It uh, doesn't mean that it's guaranteed, but it does help. It still counts, baby. It still counts, and uh, when you need flexibility with the APR, you need flexibility with the APR, so by whatever means necessary. So I believe Florida State's APR is expected to improve again this year. That's that's what I've been told. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens the next time the numbers come out. You're right. that like Getting the guys to go to class was something that, that Taggart did for the most part, so that's, uh, that he deserves some credit for that. But to be honest... Yeah, you get some credit for that, but at the same time, like it should have never been anywhere near that bad in the first place. Like it's more that's more a reflection on some criticism that is deserved by Jimbo than credit deserved for Willie. Like I would expect any coach to have their players at least go to class uh, and show up for tutoring and whatnot. Uh, that's almost like putting your name on the test, but it is something that if you don't do, you can fail. They're going to have some turnover after the season, so they need some of this APR flexibility. I, I don't think you're going to have like 12 guys come off the roster or anything like that as far as non-seniors, but I would expect you probably have four or five more guys who are underclassmen leave the program after this year. Don't you? I, I, I can eyeball a couple of these right now. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, the, it's a uh, rumor mill still thick and fast, and you hear about guys periodically. And yeah, I would think that... Uh, you know, there'll be a decent amount of turnover. I, I think a decent amount of turnover is just going to be 
life in college football moving forward. And to an extent, I wonder if they don't have to make some kind of modifications to the APR uh, based off some of the things that may transpire with the transfer portal and the frequency with which people use it. But uh, yeah, I think if, um, you know, Florida State is not totally chained to the APR at this point as they were maybe 18 months ago where you just couldn't, um, you know, it was one of the great handcuffs that was placed on Whitley. You were asking for a culture change and at the same time, you had to pretty much make the roster work as is because otherwise you were concerned with, you know, some of the more graver penalties that are associated uh, with that, with the APR and, and what comes of it. So uh, I think if need be, Florida State has the flexibility to do what they need to do and uh, have put themselves in a much better footing with the, with the academic standing. So uh, Justin asked a question, how much better would we be this year if we had retained Willie Taggart Instead of financing our future with, with Mike Norvell, would uh, Shannon have recommended we move on from Willie when it looked like the two starting quarterbacks uh, that just beat the brakes off us uh, could have been Knowles this year? Interesting take there, and I, I see what he's saying with uh, with the transfer portal and King. But um, yeah, what's what's your opinion of Justin's question there, Bud? Yeah, I, I don't think the, if Willie's still the coach, I, I don't think he loses Georgia Tech. I, I, I think I think they score far more than ten points. I mean, you still have Kendall Bryles. Uh, more importantly, and this is not like a, hey, Kendall Bryles' offense is better than Mike Marvell's system or whatever. I mean, they, they both run very effective offenses w- w- when they're going. Do you, did you think Kendall would still be here if he had been offered the Arkansas job or, or other positions? Maybe, maybe not. It, it's, an, it's a really interesting question, and maybe we can go down that road. I, I, I kind of read this as like if you kept the staff around from last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if, if you did. Uh, then, and, and the answer is there's, there's a decent chance that, that he, that he was not going to still be here. Right. Uh, but if you kept that staff around from last year, then I, I do think that you, you've, I think you beat Georgia Tech. I just think the, the office of continuity there is, is worth a win over, over GT. And I think you probably have a record that's, you know, 500 ish, a win, win and a half different. You're paying a significant penalty. Like let's, let's not, let's not beat around the bush. You're paying a pretty big penalty to make a coaching change in a COVID year, for the most part. Yeah, obviously not something that anybody could have projected. I, I'm not sure I'm in full agreement with you that you beat Willie Taggart if he's here, or you beat Georgia Tech if Willie Taggart's here. But you know that's that's a pretty much a guessing game at this point. You made a move that, by all indications, with the information that you had at the time, was the right move to make, and obviously things have changed. Uh, not only for Florida State, but the reality of uh, for pretty much everybody else in the world right now when it comes to finances and uh, maybe not something you would have made in retrospect, but you made the right decision at the time, and that's all you can ask of people. But before we get to the last question of the evening, want to thank our friends at Congruity. Congruity is experiencing your business optimized. Congruity's highly customized HR solutions designed to enhance your brand, save time, save money, and reduce business risk. Meaningful outsourced HR for companies just like yours. Congruity strives to create values for our customers by delivering a truly unique client-centric experience that helps them accomplish their desired goals, inspires performance, engages their employees on a more personal level, and fosters a positive culture. Contact our friend Matt Lewis at 844-247-4100. Again, Matt can be reached at 844-247-4100 or at Knowles at congruityhr.com. All right, so let's, let's end the night on one or two more. Uh, let's go Michael and maybe Chris, and the rest of them we, we can take 
next episode. So Michael asks, uh, hey, I understand now that there are problems all over this team, but am I wrong? I think it's all about the offensive line making everything else look worse. For instance, Blackman looks worse uh, with no time. Defense looks worse because the offensive line can't keep the offense on the field. It's all set of dominoes starting up front on offense. For instance, if we had the 2013 offensive line, how much better does the rest of this team look? You know, that's an interesting question, Michael. Uh, And there is some truth to it. And you could even add things like the coaching staff totally overestimated how good this defense was going to be because it's totally wrecking stuff in practice because the offensive line can't block a leg. Uh, But at the same time, uh, there have been opportunities in games this year where James Blackman had time and he ended up giving himself less time by scrambling into pressure when he he didn't need to. He may just be ruined as a quarterback, if we're being frank here, like all, all that time spent behind that line with what, three quarterback coaches in three years and or shoot four and four years and, and really no development of him in that time. A lot of this is not really his own fault, but like you have, you have quarterback issues, you have defensive end issues that whether they went against a good offensive line or a bad offensive line in, in camp, they, they, they would still be poor players. Uh, you have receivers who are giving poor effort. And again, if you want to, sure, you can trace that back to the offensive line, not giving them time to throw the ball and, and, causing a poor attitude for them, knowing that if they go deep, they're not going to get it. That's still on them. So I, I think it's oversimplifying to say that it all traces back to the offensive line. If you could fix one on-field thing about this team right now, what would you fix? I think it is offensive line, right? I mean, I, 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 I think I'd rather fix that than anything else on field right now, probably, just because there's so many different guys there on that position. It's you know, maybe the most important position group on the team. Not the most important position, obviously, quarterback. Uh, but it is it is more than just that. If you had the 2013 offensive line right now, how much better does the rest of the team look? I think they're... If, right now, I think you have them going, what, three and eight? Yeah, that's about where I am. Do you make them five and six or six and five? I have them about six. I, I lean towards six and five more than five and six. Yeah, I, I think there's enough talent elsewhere on the roster that, uh, and as as the question points out, a better offensive line makes pretty much every unit better. And, and uh, you know, in theory, allows them to perform at a level that they're not right now. And, yeah, I, I would have us being probably just slightly above 500. Well, it also eliminates some of these games. Like, like, if we have that offensive line in Tallahassee, we don't say the following sentence. Well, that's a game you just can't win because we know you can't block them. Well, that was, yeah, exactly. I was going to say, you don't start your year just counting four to five losses because you know that when it, when it matters in the trench, you can't block them. You can't, you can't do anything against it. So yeah, it, it dynamically changes the the projections of the season and the amount of games that you have even an opportunity to win or be competitive in. And it's not like that offensive line had a bunch of like, like guys who played a long time in the NFL, but it had a couple of dudes who are still in the NFL and a couple of guys who got drafted. So yeah, I, I don't think it's crazy to think that that is a two or three win improvement over whatever your expectation happens to be right now. Last one of the night. Let's go to Chris. All right, Chris's question. Hey, guys, lots of talk about bringing in younger questions. Has Travis been passed up on the depth chart? And if so, could we see a position change for him? It seems like he sees lanes better than our current group of running backs, and the guy just looked like he glides effortlessly uh, when he has the ball under his arm. So, uh, yeah, I was kind of, I was surprised a little bit. I mean, I knew they were going to be doing some different packages and, 
uh, and we'd see some different wrinkles. I was a little bit surprised to see Travis lined up uh, in some of the places that he was in the opening series of the Miami game. And I agree, he looks like he's got, you know, he has a a certain degree of confidence and, and comfort when carrying the ball that you don't see from a lot of other skill position players right now. So I don't think he's a position change guy personally, but I, I think you do as, as much as you can to try to get the most out of him, which I realize is kind of contradictory. But uh, I think he's a, a quarterback who you kind of use in an unorthodox method for me personally. I would agree with that. I, I, we had another question about using him like like how the Saints used Taysom Hill, uh, although it obviously didn't work out too well for the Saints on uh, Monday night or, or Sunday night, whatever night that was that they, they went to Hill and then he ultimately didn't, didn't get the job done there. They took Breeze out of the game. Uh, but part of this seeing lanes thing, I do think is that he has an extra blocker, right? There's literally an extra blocker on his runs, which changes the angle of the run and of the play that you don't have when you have other quarterbacks in there, because you're not just going to take and direct snap to Blackman and have him run. But with, with Travis, you, you do. Uh, as far as him being passed up on the depth chart, yeah, I, I think his throwing limitations mean that he's kind of your, your gadget quarterback right now. I, I don't really consider him, I want to say a real quarterback, but but he's clearly not somebody who they believe can run your whole offense at this point. So I, I guess in that sense, he kind of has been passed on the depth chart, at, at least unofficially. All right. Uh, let's end real quickly, but on a little positive note, we'll try to do that every once in a while, whether it's noting that, uh, you know, players have gotten big contracts in the league or whatever else. We'll turn as our eyes have had to frequently over the past couple of years to the basketball program and congratulate one uh, Charlton Young on being named the top minority assistant coach in all of college basketball by the Minority Coaches Association. Uh, coach Young obviously he's been instrumental in the success that the program's had. I want to point out that he has maybe the best handle on Twitter in coach C S E E Y 12. Uh, and, uh, just been, you know, obviously Leonard is the guy who deserves, uh, the lion's, uh, lion's share of the praise. And that comes when you're the head coach, but, uh, coach Young's been just incredible in the transformation of the program and good to see him get some of the success recognition, uh, that is coming his way and certainly a guy that you think is going to have an awful lot of success when he takes a head coaching job somewhere uh, in the future. And maybe that's ultimately Florida State in some kind of uh, planned transition, but a rising star regardless of uh, where his next employment is. Dude, that's awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Very cool. we got a lot of great questions, which is real cool too, and we'll uh, still get to some in a future episode. Thank you to all our Patreons uh, and all of our supporters in general. It's a uh, Certainly a tough time to, uh, <laughs> to pod at times about Florida State football, but we're still incredibly fortunate to be able to do so. And we thank you, uh, whether it be sharing the podcast with your friends, liking a, a post on social media, or giving us a review on uh, iTunes or any other podcast app. So, Bud, uh, we'll be back soon. But this will be the end of this particular episode of the Nolcast. All right, bud. Talk to you soon. This has been the Nolcast. The Nolcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Knowles.